Hello, listeners, and welcome to the 36th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I'm recording this week in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where I have been shooting some photos and videos and running around outside in freezing cold temperatures trying to help assemble some gigantic equipment for my full-time employer. Um, First, let me apologize for the lack of episode last week. I was uh, in the middle of a week-long training course that had a four-hour exam on Friday, and I ended up spending Thursday night creating an eight-page cheat sheet um, for that test that I'm not actually sure did any good anyway. Um, This whole month is a bit screwy, given I'm Less than uh, two weeks away from a trip to Amsterdam for both work and pleasure. So podcasts may be a bit spotty, but I thank you so much for sticking with me. Uh, And since I have to get up early tomorrow to route gigantic electrical cables, let's get right into it. Here are your top stories. First up this week, I wanted to start out uh, with the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is neither sexy sexy nor particularly interesting, but it is very important and matters a lot when it comes to cars in the automotive industry. Um, We've heard for more than a year how Donald Trump intends to tear up NAFTA and start all over again, and the U.S. and Canada and Mexico have engaged in several rounds of negotiations to try to reconcile what the Donald apparently wants and what our leading trade partners are willing to tolerate, despite the whole encouragement of the build the wall chant. Uh, honestly, we're we're just lucky Mexico is still taking us seriously at all. Um NAFTA has been blamed for reducing or eliminating jobs in the U.S. uh, by doing away with import tariffs for goods from Canada or Mexico. So, sure, this did cause the U.S. to lose jobs, both because labor is cheaper in Mexico and because unions can sometimes be less demanding in Canada. Uh, Trump has apparently been working on getting some of those import tariffs reinstated by driving up the percentage of each product produced in the North in North America to qualify for an exemption from those tariffs. For instance, right now, vehicles must have 62.5% of their components come from the U.S., Canada, or Mexico in order to avoid being slapped with an import tariff, thereby theoretically preserving jobs for the three countries here in North America. Trump wants to up this to 85% uh, coming from North America, as well as instituting a 50% U.S. clause requiring half the parts to be made here in the States. Um, Setting aside the fact that that most car makers aren't going to be able to meet this, even if they have their cars assembled in the States, the problem with this idea is that the import tariff for cars is just 2.5%, and companies would rather pay that and produce the parts in Taiwan or China for even cheaper than they can in Mexico or Canada, costing both those countries jobs as well. Additionally, a 35% tariff placed on auto parts leaving the U.S. to go to car assembly in Canada or Mexico would likely lead to even more job losses in the U.S., up to 50,000 of them, as, as companies would look to move work Uh, to Canada or Mexico to make the parts for the final cars, and they just account for that in the 2.5% tariff. 
Uh, plus, at the end of the day, if the U.S. applies a 2.5% tariff to cars being sold but not produced here, we all know who ends up paying that 2.5%. It's not the car companies, it's not the government, it's the consumers to whom the price is passed from the automakers. So, sure, you can say that they can get around it by producing locally, but the economics simply don't make sense, and the margins aren't there with U.S. manufacturing being so expensive to produce vehicles of high enough quality and of low enough cost for our citizens to purchase them. So, in response to all these moves, automakers and suppliers have banded together to say unequivocally to Trump that NAFTA is working for us, and it's working for U.S. workers. Uh, the group, which is, call, which is calling itself Driving American Jobs, says on their website, we need you to tell your elected officials that you don't change the game in the middle of a comeback. We are winning with NAFTA, and it can't get much more clear than that. Now, if you ask most people what the best-selling vehicle of all time is, they'll probably say the Ford F-150 because it sits atop the car and truck sales every year uh, since basically forever. But they're actually wrong because the best-selling vehicle of all time isn't a truck, and it isn't even a car. It's the Honda Super Cub. Uh, which has been manufactured since 1958 and is produced in 16 factories in 15 different countries across the world. After 47 years of production, Honda produced the 50 millionth Super Cub in 2005. And here, just 12 years later, Honda announced this week that they have produced their 100 millionth Cub. Uh, while we may not see many of these small scooters on the road here in the States, uh, visit any country in Asia, especially Southwest Asia, and you'll see just how much scooters roll the road. And, I mean, Honda's trying to rediscover its mojo these days with their cars, but with the Super Cub, it just never lost it. <laughs> Even though electric vehicles bear the names of familiar automotive manufacturers, the batteries that power these cars are often sourced from other technology companies whose names you might also recognize. And if you thought the technology race between auto manufacturers was heating up, you should see the pace of innovation at the chemical technology companies. This week, Toshiba announced that they have cracked a way to get a battery to charge up to 200 miles worth of range in just six minutes or about as long as it takes to fill the entire tank from that one gas station down the street that you hate going to because the pumps are so slow, but you have to do that whole how much is my time worth, is it the worth the extra 20 cents I save calculation in your head thing. Anyway, Toshiba's batteries use titanium niobium oxide instead of graphite as anodes, which, of course, we all know doubles the capacity of the batteries and allows for a crystalline structure that permits more rapid charging. Uh, no word on what, if any, cars will receive these awesome batteries, but Toshiba's making a pretty strong case for consideration. Uh, outside of Pittsburgh, along the Ma Monongahela River, sits Almano, an 11,000-square-foot slab of asphalt bisected by intersections and parking lots and roadways where Uber tests their autonomous cars. This whole miniature fake city has been set up to simulate real-life driving in scenarios autonomous cars will encounter without actually having the cars encounter real-life people, reducing the likelihood of real-life danger. Uh, Uber uses props and models to simulate pedestrians and other obstacles 
and hopes to double the size of their little fake town to grow the list of problems that they can put to their cars. This is a legitimately neat idea and clever execution that both mitigates potential public problems and avoids confrontations with governments over the right to use public roads. Uh, you would then be excused for thinking that it could not possibly have been Uber's idea, but it just goes to show that broken clocks are also right twice a day. The Wall Street Journal this week reported that Tesla has signed a deal to build a manufacturing facility in Shanghai's free trade zone, the deal, which is apparently the first of its kind allowing a foreign automaker ownership of a plant, will certainly bolster Tesla's production capacity, which we all know is a seriously struggling to meet both demand and the ambitious goals of founder Elon Musk. The plant also positions the company well to take advantage of the booming Chinese electric vehicle market, which hopes to sell 7 million EVs per year by 2025. China is facing a serious uh, pollution problem in many of its major metropolitan areas, and EVs are seen as a potential solution to mitigating the particulate matter smog, but the reality is somewhat more complicated since China relies on virtually unregulated coal plants for electricity generation. This, combined with a lack of plan for how to recycle batteries once they reach the end of their useful lives, means that the life cycle emissions from EVs could end up being greater than just using an internal combustion vehicles in the first place with catalytic converters. Um, Tesla's big move will probably also create bigly problems with the current U.S. president, who has long held China responsible for the demise of American blue-collar manufacturing jobs. What is clear is that this is a smart move on Musk's part, and Tesla is well-positioned for the future. Just be ready for some nasty tweets. And speaking of nasty tweets, Tesla really got into a bit of a tiff this week with Consumer Reports, whose annual reliability study was released. Uh, the nonprofit Consumer Watchdog rated the Model S pretty highly, but only gave the Model 3 an average reliability rating after not having driven the car at all. Meanwhile, it rated the Model X the least reliable car in the entire auto industry, which really fanned the fire on the flame war. Um, Tesla called them out on this, bitching about the lack of knowledge from driving vehicles, and Consumer Reports responded that, hey, average is pretty good for new cars, but the reality is probably somewhere in between. When the Model S came out, Consumer Reports called the P85D probably the best car ever made, but then it had to walk back its recommendation after a litany of reliability issues surfaced. Um, this time around, they probably don't want to be burned by laying out high praise on new cars with unproven technologies, especially with Tesla's sort of rotten track record. On a related anecdotal note, I was cut off in traffic by some asshole in a Model X last week and couldn't tell very well when the car was braking because its middle brake light was already broken. These things haven't been out on the road very long, and they're LEDs, so maybe Tesla should stop trying to pick fights and focus on actually getting their cars right. Uh, as I mentioned, Consumer Reports' annual reliability ratings came out this week, and the Model X was dead last, but it wasn't the only luxury brand whose cars featured in the bottom 10. The Mercedes GLC, the Jaguar F-Pace, the GMC Acadia... Okay, it's not really a luxury car, but it's still sort of luxurious. Uh, the Volvo XC90, the Cadillac Escalade, all occupied the list for buggy electronics and wonky infotainment systems. Obviously, there's something to be said for simple cars being more reliable because there's just less to go wrong, but that's not true of the Chevy Camaro, Ford Fiesta, Focus, or Fiat 500, all of which can be had in pretty bare-bones forms, 
but still also found themselves on this list of the bottom 10. Uh, meanwhile, at the top of the list sits Toyota and Lexus, surprising nobody and at the same time, exciting nobody. Uh, how many times have you taken a look at your sweet AK-47 assault rifle and wished, man, I wish Kalashnikov would make me a motorcycle I could ride that also had a mount for my sweet AK-47 assault rifle on the handlebars? Well, good news. <laughs> you now can, and it's electric. Manufactured by its subsidiary IZH, which has been making bikes since the 1920s apparently, Kalashnikov unveiled a military prototype electric motorcycle for use by police and the military at next year's World Cup, where presumably nothing will go wrong, or at least nobody will hear about it because the reporters who would have covered it have all been killed for treason. Anyway, uh, we don't have any specs on the bike, but with the legendary manufacturing prowess of the Russian company, you'd expect their reliability to be bulletproof. Get it? Because it's a gun company? Anyway, uh, if video game guns are more your speed, uh, I also have good news because uh, Nissan has unveiled a GTR that can be driven by none other than a PlayStation controller. Um, cleverly called the GTRC, RC for remote control, uh, the car pretty much lives out any Gran Turismo player's fantasy. Uh, I think Teenage Me might have actually driven a car better with a PlayStation controller than with actual pedals or wheels, which is a sad reflection on myself, but I think it's pretty cool. But if most gamers are, like me, uh, relying on the game's damage mode being switched to off, um, I'm afraid that's a bit impossible to do in real life. Um... German authorities have spent the past couple of weeks carrying out raids in Munich, Ingolstadt, Wolfsburg, and Stuttgart, the homes of BMW, Audi, Volkswagen, and Mercedes, in support of an EU-led investigation into the price-fixing cartel that authorities say German automakers have run for years. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and the things have only been heating up since then, with allegations of technology price suppression and collusion to uh, even the playing field among ja German-based companies while allowing competitors from Japan, Korea, and the U.S. to struggle to keep up or achieve similar cost savings. BMW has been the most outspoken on the matter, if only to clarify that the raids taking place have nothing to do with the Dieselgate scandal that has rocked VW. Uh, it's pretty rare that a company will come out with a statement along the lines of, we want to make clear that we did not do this illegal activity, but maybe we did this other illegal activity, and that's what this is all about. Usually we'd expect that sort of thing from Uber, not BMW. Um, while cities and countries across Europe and the world cracked down on uh, and banned diesel-powered vehicles, in February, Singapore will cap the total number of vehicles allowed on the country's roads, period, and not because of pollution. Uh, being a small city-state island, they just simply don't have enough room for more vehicles, uh, which can often cost more than four times what you might expect to pay here in the States. Uh, Ride-sharing services like Uber and Grab, which actually sounds like but cannot possibly be more inappropriate than Uber, um, are becoming popular just as the Singapore government has been investing heavily in public transportation services, so the government is trying to take measures to discourage additional vehicles and spare the roads from further congestion. Or as Americans might put it, the government's stealing their freedoms and oppressing their rights to free speech. 
CNC Music Factory, uh, responsible for energizing crowds at NBA games across the country, is now responsible for a traffic ticket, uh, at least sort of. Uh, while pumping the Jock Jams classic Everybody Dance Now, Taufik Muala was enthusiastically singing along, encouraging other drivers to put down their phones and just dance, which is arguably not a more responsible activity to do while driving. Uh, perhaps because of this, Taufik was pulled over and ticketed by police in Montreal, possibly also because the French influence has sapped Quebecois of their humor. The ticket, just shy of $120, will be contested, but not by Taufik's wife, who argued that if she had been the cops, she'd have given him a fine of twice the amount. Normally, that would be the punchline to the joke, but she apparently did actually say that. Uh, so the Tokyo Motor Show is going on uh, right now, and I want to wait to provide a complete, comprehensive wrap-up until everything is out and over and, and seen, but I thought a few were for, worth mentioning more in depth. So here are some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless brand new. you might see me in my well with my First, Honda followed up their excellent retro-futuristic urban EV concept with the sports EV concept, which takes the general design language from the urban vehicle and applies it to a package uh, in the traditional shape of a small sports car, kind of like the Mazda MX-5 RF, which is the one with the hardtop. Uh, like the urban EV, uh, we don't have any details on battery power or range or even drivetrain, which, when it comes to sports cars, matters a lot more than it does with small urban hatchbacks. Uh, they can create a compelling-looking little EV with sporty handling, but if it's front-wheel drive, the dynamics simply may not be exciting enough to function as a worthy alternative to something like the Toyota GT86 or even uh, Toyota's forthcoming gas-powered Supra. Um, if they can pull off the same sort of magic they did with the S2000, make it quirky looking and all electric, we are going to have an absolute hit on our hands. Oh, and that urban EV concept I loved? It has been formally confirmed for production in 2019, so we'll see if the production model can live up to the concept hype. Porsche this week uh, lifted the veil on yet another version of the 911 called the Carrera T. Uh, this basically takes a current Carrera's 3-liter turbo flat 6, tunes it to 370 horsepower, adds a bunch of black graphics and accents with T on them, and calls it an enthusiast version. Uh, to be fair, it's uh, stripped back a bit with less sound deadening and fewer features, and apparently uh, because of that it's lighter and quicker, uh, with the optional PDK automatic transmission speeding the car from 0 to 60 in just 4 seconds. Uh, but if you're a true enthusiast, you'll spring for the manual because even though it's almost half a second slower to 60, you think you can shift faster than a machine and it's all about control and rowing your own and being one with the machine and that's the true nature of enthusiastism. <sighs> sometime earlier last year or earlier this year, sometime recently, Honda announced that they were discontinuing their super popular Goldwing touring bike. Well, apparently that just meant that they were discontinuing the current model because they've just unveiled the 2018 Goldwing, which sees the first complete overhaul of the bike in, in what seems like decades. Uh, from the bottom up, Honda has reworked the uh, flat six engine 
and added what they're calling a double wishbone suspension, which you typically see on a four-wheeled car to the front wheel of the bike, and the whole thing is lighter and sleeker and features a bevy of new technology that either brings it in line or with or takes it out in front of its competitors. Gold Wings have always been big, heavy, comfortable, stable bikes, uh, and they've been a hit with older riding demographics who don't want the sort of upright fetal position of sport sport bike riding. Uh, but with the new spy styling, Honda is trying to broaden the reach to younger riders who are in large part not really riding motorcycles all that much at all. Uh, I know Honda's trying to get their mojo back with cars, so it looks like the Goldwing is their effort to do the same with motorcycles as well. Um, like I said, I will do my best to cover the um, the rest of the Tokyo Motor Show uh, probably next week once everything has ended. Um, but since I am traveling this week, uh, I am in a rental car, which means uh, I still don't have an intro, intro for this, but... Uh, uh, I'll do a, a, a rental review on uh, my Jeep Compass. Uh, I mentioned, as I mentioned, I'm in Toronto uh, this week for my real job, and uh, Budget gave me a Jeep Compass, uh, which is several classes above the economy car that I actually reserved. Um, but of course, I'm totally fine with it. Um, having not driven or even ridden in a Jeep for several years, I wasn't really sure what to expect, but it's pretty nice. Uh, compared with the Rogue I drove a couple months ago, this is a serious step up in many regards. And while it's comfortable and well-appointed, I, I still don't think I would buy one. Um, the model I'm driving specifically is the Compass Limited, which comes with pretty much every creature comfort Jeep has to offer, including a heated steering wheel and heated seats, both of which come on automatically when you start the car, unless you go into the internal menu and turn them off, which I've had to do because my idea of warm is somewhat lower temperature-wise than Jeep's scalding setting. Um, under the hood is a 2.4-liter four-banger, which is equipped with a start-stop technology, which takes a little while to get used to and definitely affects responsiveness when you're trying to merge into traffic on busy Canadian motorways. That said, it's it's peppy, but not, not fun. <laughs> um... And the exterior, looks-wise, it's fine. Uh, the Compass, which uses, uh, w or it used to have the Wrangler's uh, cute round headlights, uh, now looks a bit more like a miniature Grand Cherokee with uh, butch styling and chunky, utilitarian-looking features, and, and, and it sort of suits the, the general idiom of the car. Um, this isn't a vehicle you buy because you think it looks cute. It's a vehicle you buy because you think it looks rugged and masculine and gives off a sort of macho vibe despite its relatively diminutive stature. Uh, inside, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. There's the stitching on some of the leather surfaces, but not all of the leather surfaces, so it's sort of like they picked random seams to be fancier than others, which I don't really understand. Um, the controls on the dash are kept at a minimum with many buttons hidden inside the menus on the touchscreen, which has just started to drive me absolutely insane with cars. There's this trend in a lot of cars nowadays to have clean interiors that do away with almost all of your buttons and instead rely on a touchscreen interface to control almost everything. Uh, the most extreme example is obviously Tesla, where... 
in the case of the Model 3, your windshield wiper speed is under a sub-menu you have to navigate to, uh, presumably while driving in the rain. Um, this frustrates me as a marketer and a designer because when you design websites, and, and I've designed many of them, you have to strike a balance between attractive looking and easy to use. And in cars, they're forgetting about that last bit because it's truly a pain in the ass to have your butt and hands on fire when you're driving down a Canadian highway because the heater's turned on by default and you have to figure out how to get them to turn off while also driving. Just just make a button. Uh, <laughs> there are ways to do it in an attractive style uh, and hiding them in menus is just lazy design. So apart from the fussy controls, which are hard to reach from the driver's seat, uh, which I have to set back pretty far because of my long legs, um, it's pretty nice. Uh, the seats don't have very big bolsters in them, but the ones they do have are pretty good and keep you from rolling around, unlike the Rogue. Um, there's also an absolutely massive sunroof uh, that extends all the way to the back of the rear seats. Uh, because of this, though, the motor that retracts that cover sits in the roof and lowers the headliner, restricting the already really limited rear view. Um, the back of this car has uh, little tiny windows, which uh, look like Jeep's way of saying, see, we tried. Um, one weird gripe I have is with the instrument cluster, and this may be just a Canadian-specific thing, um, but the speedometer here, which is in kilometers per hour, has rounded tick marks around the circular dial, which just look like soft and imprecise. And I don't think I've ever seen another speedometer with rounded tick marks, and I can't really explain why it bugs me, but it definitely does. Um, the entertainment system is pretty good. Uh, it's better than Nissan's, and it has satellite radio, which is nice. Uh, the speakers sound really good. As I mentioned, the menus on the touchscreen are a bit of a pain to navigate through for things that there should be buttons for, but it's attractive and it's snappy. Uh, for the powertrain, I get the sensation like there's a lot more to the Compass than I or likely most of its owners will ever use. They're, the four-cylinder is fine, but it's not exciting. Uh, it has decent torque, and, and there's a big four-wheel drive dial with many different modes to select. And I guess on icy Canadian mornings, sure, the, the four-wheel high might be a good pick, but Compass drivers aren't going to be taking these things to do any serious off-roading. Nobody cares that these are trail-rated. Anyone with a desire to go mudding or crawling gets a, a Wrangler or a Suzuki Samurai or a Tacoma or a Forerunner or or even a, a, a an old Jeep Cherokee. Uh, any number of other trucks are that are not compact crossovers. So sure, the Compass may be capable, but you're paying a premium for it that never really pays any dividends uh, for the way people actually end up driving. And speaking of driving, it's it's just not fun in the Compass. Uh, the visibility is really poor. It doesn't go very fast or turn very well, um, but it's small and easy to park and easy to get around tight city streets or crowded parking lots. Uh, it's it's kind of dummy-proof in that it isn't fast enough to get you in trouble and isn't sharp enough to cause anyone to try to drive it in an exciting or dangerous way. Uh this is not a car for drivers. This is this is a car for passengers, one of whom just has to steer and work the throttle and gas a bit. A lot like the Rogue, but better looking and better feeling. 
overall, the compass is is just fine. Uh, unlike the Rogue, which I I suppose I understand as the car people buy when they hate driving, but need something that has a bit more space than the Altima. I do understand why people would want to buy the Compass. It's comfortable, it's nice looking, it's a decent place to spend your commute, and it's a competent little car with uh, you know, a bit of storage space, though less than the Rogue for sure. Uh, it, it's, it's a solid crossover, but not particularly good at anything, which is my gripe with crossovers. So if you want a decent crossover that is shoes the short, uh, the sort of macho style you search for as you as you look for parking and and your Galleria parking lot, I get why you'd want one of these. But for me, it it's a perfectly fine rental. Um, so that's it for my rental review. Uh, for this week's call to action this week, I read a really amazing story about a doctor from Santa Rosa, California, that I wanted to share with you. And yes, it has an automotive theme. Uh, Dr. Scott Witt, who is the director of the Souter Santa Rosa Regional Hospital's neonatal ICU, uh, received a call late at night earlier this month that his help was needed to evacuate the infants from the ICU because the Tubbs wildfire was threatening to overtake the hospital. Uh, Dr. Witt hopped in his truck to make his way to the hospital but found his way blocked by traffic and fire. Um... But undiscouraged, the good doctor circled back and picked up his BMW 9T motorcycle and headed to the hospital, dodging cars, riding on the gravel shoulders of highways, and skirting around the wildfire until he could reach the hospital, where he and several dedicated nurses and other physicians loaded the infants into ambulances to be transported to other hospitals. And as if if the trip to the hospital wasn't scary enough, the trip from it sounds like absolute hell Um, and I'll quote directly from the article because SFGate did a great job of painting the picture Um, quote as the two as the last two babies were loaded into an ambulance Witt realized the only way he could make it to Memorial Hospital was on his motorcycle at that point the fire had come close enough that I knew the only way to get there was to follow the ambulance on the freeway he said I figured it would be okay if I followed the ambulance and got some draft. The ambulance, with Witt on his motorcycle close behind, sped into Highway 101, which was closed to all but emergency vehicles. The smoke from the fires was so dense, Witt had to rely on the ambulance's lights to guide him. Flames licked at the side of the freeway, and embers whipped through the air and across the pavement. Fallen power lines and branches were scattered across the roadway. Witt said he simply tried to steer clear of hazards and stay focused on getting to the hospital to take care of his young patients. I thought that was a pretty incredible act of heroism to save babies who obviously can't save themselves. And I thought it was worth sharing since there's so much negativity around these days. And in the same vein, I hope you'll take some time this week to recognize somebody who works to help out others. Uh, in an age of selfishness and polarization, the people doing the best to unify and serve humanity definitely deserve more recognition than we're giving them. Uh, with that, I'll call it a wrap on this week's show. Uh, since I'm driving a Jeep this week, I thought I'd leave you with the sounds of one, but it's not like they made a Jeep Compass rally car or anything with that's a compass that makes a good noise. So instead, here's a Jeep SRT8. And yes, it's got a hammy. Here, friends is your moment of zen.